The scripture reading today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. Uh, let's, let's, let's pray together. Father, we, we do thank you for your word, and we are grateful that it speaks to us concerning all matters that pertain to living a life of godliness, living a life that pleases you and, and honors you. And so, Lord, I, I pray by your spirit, come now and, and work in our lives through this text. I pray you would help us to, Lord, see you for who you really are. I pray we would just marvel at your, your gospel and the way in which you showed love to us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I am Daniel. I am a uh, church planting apprentice at Christ City East Vancouver, and I, and I feel really grateful to be back. I was here here last week. It's nice to come back and see some familiar faces. I know, of course, Brant has been sick for the last couple weeks. I'm just saying it's convenient, though. Like two weeks ago, circumcision. This week... Sex. So, of course, Brent, I know you were actually sick. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, let, let, me, let me catch you up and, and tell you where we've been. So, so, last week, we decided to actually jump ahead in 1 Corinthians 7 and, and look at verses 17 and 24. And the reason we decided to do that is because we thought in that text is the principle that Paul is really trying to unpack for the entire chapter. Basically, Paul says in chapter 7, verses 17 and 24, you can serve God in any and all circumstances. So whether you are Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, whether you are wealthy or poor, of high standing or of low social standing, whether you are free or slave, you have the ability to honor God and use that position of your life as an act of worship to the Lord. 
And so now what Paul is going to do is he's going to take that principle and he's going to unpack it in three different spheres. Next week, we're going to look at divorce. Two weeks now from now, you'll look at singleness. But this week, we're going to look at marriage. How might we serve the Lord in our marriages and particularly as it pertains to sex? I never thought I'd say this in church, but let's talk about sex, baby. I I think the slogan that rightly describes our culture's attitude towards sex is, it's just sex. It's just sex. Now, what's interesting, I think, is that as the research will show, that can actually manifest itself in two very different ways. You can either have lots of sex or you can put off having sex. See, the phrase, it's just sex, is basically trying to say this, that sex is a merely physical act that has little bearing on our emotional or spiritual life. So sex is something we do with our body, but not with our mind or our soul, and thus it can be detached from relationship and from commitment. So sex is not that big of a deal. So on one hand, go have sex. In the year 2017, USA Today published an article on a bunch of research findings that basically said this, that millennials view going on a first date to be more intimate than having sex. So, so listen to this one, um, one quote from the, the article. It reads this, we, we used to think of sex as you crossed the line and, and now you're in an intimate zone. But now sex is almost a given, and it's not the intimate part. The intimate part is getting to know someone and going on a date. So you, so you know those big, big questions that we ask on a first date, like, where do you live? Where do you go to school? What do you, what do, you do? What's your favorite color? Those big first date questions are so important, so much more intimate than actual the, than the physical activity of sex. So it's just sex. So on one hand, we're quick to have sex, but interestingly, on the other hand, we're actually becoming slower and slower to have sex as a society. See, if sex is merely a bodily activity, then it doesn't carry the same reward and fulfillment that we might be looking for. So, who cares? Ah, it's just sex. See, that research also is showing that millennials have begun to look for fulfillment elsewhere. They're they're looking to non-romantic relationships for companionship and the feeling of belonging. They're, They're turning to their careers. So, as one person was quoted as saying, he says, sex is not going to be something that people ask you for in your resume. So, uh, it's just sex. I don't, I don't have time for that. I got more important things to do. Now, here's what I think is interesting. That, that kind of view of our society is very similar to the view going on in Corinth. So, on one hand, you have people who are rushing to have sex. 
It's, it's very, very easy and accessible. Many individuals, actually the majority of individuals, would frequent the, the prostitutes at the pagan temples. But on the other hand, you also have this small contingent who are saying, no, 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 we should actually put off having sex. Sex is, is a bodily activity, and it actually mars or dirties our spiritual natures. And so if you want to reach true fulfillment in life, then be done with those physical pleasures. So both in Corinth and Vancouver, we are divorcing the physical side of sex from the spiritual side of sex. And so what Paul will say in our passage this morning is that God has created humanity actually as a unified whole. We are body and spirit. We are, we are physically intertwined. And thus sex is far more significant than we may think. Sex is actually a far more significant act than we may think. So here's my outline. I want to say five things, five points this morning. Sex is good. Sex is given, sex is glue, sex is glorious, and sex is something you can go without. So first off, sex is good. Look at verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, Paul's now going to quote here a Corinthian slogan. Okay, This is what they're saying in Corinth. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, I don't think we exactly say this in our church or churches as a whole, but I, I, I do think we say something similar sometimes, right? We say sex is dirty and disgusting, and so you better save it for the person you love. Like the irony behind that is, re is really interesting. Like how vile sex. So you do with the person you're spending the rest of your life with, okay? And, and so we... But this idea here is that sex is, is that idea that sex is anything less than wonderful and good is actually entirely unbiblical. So, so look at what Paul will say in verse 2. He says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each woman should have, that's a euphemism for sex, each woman should have, sorry, each, oh, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. M monogamous sex between husband and wife, Paul says, is good. And he actually goes on to say you should have it often. So, so in verse 5 he says this, Do not deprive one another. The devil is not the one who created sex. The devil has not made anything that is good. Yes, absolutely, Satan loves to twist and pervert the good things that God created. He wants to turn a good thing into an ultimate thing. He wants to uh, have us use certain things outside of their intended boundaries. But Satan didn't create sex. God, God did. It was an act of creation. It, it was a, a gift God didn't create the man and the woman, turn around, come back a few hours later and go, oh my goodness, what are they doing, right? God, God knew how anatomy worked. This was a, a gift. And he didn't just intend it for procreation. In this entire section, there's not one reference to baby making. 
This is supposed to be, Paul's talking about an, an act of pleasure. That's why he says, do not deprive each other. Think about how amazing that makes our God. That, that our, our God would give us pleasure centers to, to enjoy life. Like, like he didn't need to make us that way. And yet he decides to give us, to have us enjoy these pleasures and satisfactions in life. We, we actually have a, a whole book in the Bible devoted to the topic of a, a husband and wife in, enjoying each other. It's the book of, of Song of Solomon. Let, let me just read to you a section of this book, okay? This is the husband speaking now. He, he's rejoicing over his bride on their wedding day. He says this, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Husbands, we can contextualize. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ooze that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young. You have all your teeth. It's amazing. Your, your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves on a pomegranate behind your veil. Contextualize. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. God has designed sex to be a marriage gift to us. And then interestingly, the, the way we worship God is actually by enjoying this gift and thanking him for it. So, so listen to what 1 Timothy 4 says. It reads this. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insanity of liars whose consciences are seared. This is what they're forbidding. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. Just enjoy the gift of sex in your marriages, Paul is saying. It's an act of actually worshiping God. It's the best homework from the sermon ever. Second point, sex is given. Sex is given. Look at verses 2 and following. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What Paul is saying here was incredibly countercultural in his day, in, in the city of Corinth. See, in Corinth, there was a prioritization of the man over the woman. 
And that carried over into their sex life. Sex was primarily about serving the male, and it overlooked the desires of the woman. But, but look at what Paul says in verse 3. He says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Women have equal right to enjoy sex as men do. Listen to what one scholar said about the Song of Solomon. He says, The role of the woman throughout the Song of Solomon is truly astounding, especially in light of its ancient origins. It's the woman, not the man, who is the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up the song. She is the one who seeks, pursues, and initiates. So I thought it's only fair... Let me read to you the wife's response in Song of Solomon. Verse 10 of chapter 5. My beloved, this is the, the, the wife speaking of her husband. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. I don't know if the other section, ladies, got you going, but this, for me, would be very good for my wife to say. Verse 13, uh, verse, verse 14, his arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bed bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedar. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. The wife is actually invited and encouraged to delight in her husband. But that actually leads us to Paul's actually more, even more radical countercultural point here. He says that, look, because wife and husband are both able to enjoy physical intimacy, sex no longer becomes something that is self-serving. Rather, it is a means of loving and serving our other. Instead of using sex for personal gain, husband and wife are to seek to mutually serve each other through sexual intimacy. Sex is no longer about getting pleasure, it's about giving it to the other. And so verse 4, again, reads this, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Wives, Paul says, your bodies don't belong to you. They belong to your husband. Husbands, your bodies don't ultimately belong to you. They belong to your wife. Therefore, Sex is supposed to be exclusive and monogamous. But secondly, sex is not a consumer exercise, but a giving exercise. The question we're to ask is not, how might my spouse serve me, but how might I serve them? It's actually one of the reasons why pornography is so destructive. It's training us to destroy our marriages. Sex in pornography is the consumer enterprise par excellence. It's, it's what do I want? How, how can I 
create th- this person of desire that, that suits me? How, how can I add all these filters to get exactly what I want and have to give as little of myself as possible? It's the total opposite of what God intends for sex to be. And so let me just speak to us husbands for a second. Husbands, we have no right to demand or pressure our wives into having sex with us. The goal, rather, should be to pursue her, to show her that we prize all of her. Not not just her body, but all of her. Which which means we're going to sometimes have to be patient and gracious. We don't do so all pouty and passive-aggressive. We do so joyfully. Because we want to woo our wives. We want to draw them to the place when, where sexual intimacy is really seen as, an, as a gift from them, to them rather, than something we are getting from them. And again, we, we, not, we don't do this with some ulterior motive. We, we, don't, we don't love our wives for sex. We love our wives for love's sake, for their sake. Wives, likewise, Pursue your husbands for your husband's sake. Do not use or withhold sex as a means of manipulating them and getting something you want from them. Instead, like the the wife in Song of Solomon, seek to draw your husband out so that he realizes that sex is more than just physical intimacy. It's, It's the intermingling of souls. Now, what's amazing is that when sex is approached this way, it actually brings about the greatest pleasure. So, so let, me, let me read to you a quote. I, I didn't put it on the screen because I wasn't sure if I was going to read this, but, but let me read it. it. It's a quote by um, pastor and theologian Danny Aiken. He says this. This is, this is a study from the University of Chicago. It's not surprising that a University of Chicago study reports that those doing it God's way report the most satisfaction with their sex lives. When University of Chicago researchers set out to discover which religious denominations have the best sex, they learned that the faithful don't do all their shouting in the church. That's the the greatest line. (laughs) The faithful don't do all their shouting in church. Conservative Protestant women reported by far the highest satisfaction. Those with no religious affiliation were more than 33% behind, and Unitarians may not wish to read any further. Sexually active singles have the most sexual problems and get the least pleasure out of sex. Men with the most liberal attitudes about sex are 75% more likely to fail to satisfy their partners. The most sexually satisfied demographic group of them all is that of Protestant married couples between 50 and 59. Cosmopolitan touts, Cosmo's 20 favorite sex tips. We have all the wall-shaking, earthquaking moves that will make your bed up across the room. However, the statistics suggest that if you're really interested in the best sex possible, Find you a born-again babe and keep her around until she's 50 because that's when the best will come. Not my words, Danny Akins. Sex is good, something to enjoy, and sex is given. It's a selfless act 
It's a, it's a means by which we might serve and display our love for our spouse. Thirdly, sex is glue. Sex is glue. The, the reason sex is a self-giving act and not a consuming act is because marriage is also not a consumer relationship, but a covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenant relationship. So, so the consumer attitude says, you adjust to me. The covenant attitude says, how might I adjust to you? The consumer prioritizes the individual. The covenant prioritizes the relationship. So in Genesis chapter 2, when God institutes marriage, we read this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's what happens in marriage. That's a marriage covenant. It's becoming one flesh. Now, that means much more than just physical oneness. This is, this is a, a whole person, an entire being oneness. This is two becoming one. It's as though they are legally, socially, and economically one reality, okay? Therefore, sex becomes a sacrament, let me explain what that is. A sacrament is an outward display of an inward reality. It, sex is an outward display of an inward reality. So upon having sex, we're saying, look, all of me belongs to you. I am totally and exclusively yours. All that you see is yours. I am for you. I'm not withholding anything from you. And so the sex then, in many ways, becomes a covenant renewal ceremony. It's as though every time you have sex with your partner in marriage, you are renewing your vows for them. So, so look at verses 1 and following again. It says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. But, Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, because of the temptation to go looking elsewhere, each man should have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Look at verse 5 again. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex is the glue that helps a couple stay together and fight against the temptation towards sexual immorality. Now, the question that you're often given or often received if you're ever taught or helped disciple a newlywed is, is how often should we have sex? How often should we have sex? And, and my simple answer is, well, you write down your number on a piece of paper. Uh, she writes down her number on a piece of paper. And then you just add them together. <laughs> you thought I was going to say split it. <laughs> but the, the, the question, I think, is actually entirely wrong. See, see the point is, is not only how can I help my spouse fight against sexual immorality, of, of fulfilling their sexual urges elsewhere, the, the question is, how can I show my spouse that I am for them? How can I show them that we are not divided, that, that we are united in 
all things, that, that we have the same goals in life, that we want to pursue Jesus together, that we want to live our lives like a powerhouse unit with our spiritual gifts coming together and serving others as only we can. How, how are we going to disciple our kids together? How are, we going to, how are we going to show my spouse that we are one in all aspects of life? See, it's hard to give yourself physically in the most intimate act of marriage and then withhold it elsewhere. One of the... Um, friends, my, my friend just asked, he just got married this Thursday, is, is give, just give me one tip for marriage. I was like, hey, you had all life to ask this, but here's my one tip. And I, I say this kind of jokingly, but also very seriously. I tell him this, you should fight naked. You should, now let me explain, because that sounds very strange, maybe. You should, you should fight naked. I think the idea that I'm trying to get across is this one, I tell him, is that when you open yourself up, when you really realize how vulnerable and weak you are, you, you no longer begin to fight for your rights. It, it becomes very difficult to, to put up walls when at the same time you're saying all of this is belonging to you. It, it, instead of pulling back, Fighting naked actually helps bring you together. It helps you fall forward and pursue each other and, and, and often seek forgiveness and, and reconciliation. If fighting naked does that, well, then sex in marriage does that to the nth degree. It, it leads you as a couple to, to greater and different acts of self-giving. So sex is glue. It helps unite husband and wife. It reminds them of their oneness, and it catalyzes their oneness. Now, here's my question for us. Why is Satan so serious about destroying sexual and physical and spiritual oneness? Like, like why does Satan want to have a say in this? Right? So verse 5 again says this, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I think the reason Satan wants to derail sexual intimacy in marriage is because sex is fourthly glorious. It's glorious. See, sex is not only a sacrament, an external act that displays an internal reality. Sex is also a temporal act that displays eternal realities. Sex is a temporary act that displays eternal realities. God has designed sex as a means of helping us know the depth and intimacy he has for us. Just as sex evokes shouts of praise, so we are to experience the love of Christ in such a way where we praise and worship him. See, for all eternity, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been glorifying each other, making much of each other, and, and pouring out their love for one another. And then, in an act of amazing grace, just unbelievable kindness, 
God says, let us then pour out that same love. Let that love spill over onto the rest of humanity. The, the, the problem is, is though, as sinful beings who have rebelled against God, we rightfully deserve to be separated from him. We, we ought to be divorced from the love of Christ. And, and so what does God do? He sends his son. And his son gives us of himself. He doesn't demand that we change. He gives himself. He gives all of himself. He gives his body. He, he goes to the cross. He hangs naked. He hangs there where all might see him. His, his hands are nailed to the cross. His feet are nailed to the cross. His side is pierced with a spear. And he says, all of this is for you. And he dies so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be reconciled to Christ. We, we might be one with God. We, we are united with God through Jesus. And then he rises again to say, all that you do with your bodies is important. And he woos us. This, this love draws us out so that we repent of sin, we acknowledge our brokenness, and we decide to trust in his love and his worth. And then that love of God floods our lives. And so no wonder, as Tim Keller says, no wonder have some have said that sex between a man and a woman can be a sort of embodied out-of-body experience. It's an embodied, out-of-body experience. It's the most ecstatic, breathtaking, daring scarcely to be imagined. Look at the glory that is ours in the future. Sex between a husband and wife is just to be a hint. It's to help couples understand the infinite love that Christ displayed for his church. And so Satan then comes in and he goes, how can I mess that up? How can I ruin that picture? How can I just paint this black smear upon the amazing grace and picture of God's love? He says, well, what if I was to convince a husband or a wife that true fulfillment is found outside of their marriage? What, what if I could convince them that, that the sex that, that, they're, that they experience in their marriage is not good enough that's not ultimately fulfilling them, and so they need to find that in some other partner. Which I think makes it very interesting, and I understand then why Paul talks about prayer in verse 5. He says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So husband and wife together decide that instead of pursuing physical intimacy, they're going to pursue what? Not watching Netflix together, but prayer. Because it's in prayer that they're communing with God, that they're experiencing and being reminded of the love of God. They're being intimate with their heavenly Father. And then they come back together. Sex is a glorious act that helps us understand the love that God has displayed for us in Jesus. Lastly then, sex is something you can go without. Sex is something you can go without. 
You'll take a deep dive into singleness in a couple weeks, but I just want to say this. Look at verse 6 and following again. It says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am. Paul single. I wish that all were as myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. See, the question is, if sex is so glorious, then shouldn't all singles get married? Isn't that what you should pursue? If you really want to display the love that Christ has for his church, shouldn't you, shouldn't you all want to get married? And Paul's answer is no. Actually, singleness is also very good. You can, you can serve God in your singleness, and actually you can communicate something altogether different in your singleness. See, if, if in marriage, sexual intimacy communicates the depth of God's love for us, singleness communicates that marriage and sex are not ultimate. Marriage and sex are not ultimate. There is something greater than marriage and sex that is promised to us. Therefore, you don't have to be married. And Paul says, I actually encourage you not to get married if you're able to, to show the world what is still to come. Singles communicate that there is something greater to come. They communicate that our fulfillment comes by being in a relationship with God, first and foremost, and not in our spouse. See, there will come a day in heaven when we will not have sex because we will be with our God and he will be with us and we will experience in that moment the fullness of God's love and majesty. So singles, if you are single here today, the world desperately needs you. We need you in this church. We need you to be spending time with married couples so that those married couples are reminded that their marriage is not ultimate. That they, they need to be reminded that great sex is not the greatest goal of life. Singles, we need you spending time with our kids so that they realize that God can love them now. That they can experience God's love now. And that they don't have to wait until they're married and older to begin serving Christ. We need you to show us that Christ's love is superior to all other human relationships. And so you can postpone sexual intimacy because when Christ comes back, everything will, compare up, will pale in comparison to his beauty. So here's been my aim this morning. My aim is to show you that it's not just sex. It's not just sex. Sex is profoundly significant. And so if you are pursuing physical intimacy in your marriages, know and understand what a glorious thing you are saying. That Christ has given of himself for us. Or if you choose, whether widowed, Paul says, choosing singleness, maybe just pursuing a spouse, but right now you are celibate and single. Your withholding of sex also communicates something even more profound that when Christ comes back, everything will compel in comparison to his beauty and his love. 
And sex is not ultimate. He is.